1: This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal or financial product advice.
2: Welcome to My Millennial Property. You're with John Pidgeon and of course, Emily Wallace. Uh, We've got some ripping questions from the community today. I'm overwhelmed with how many people just put questions through to us that we would love to answer. They get us thinking and hopefully there's a heap of juice in there for everyone today, Emily.
3: Most definitely. Before we get cracking into it, uh, one thing I'd like to say is if you haven't already listened to the Would You Rather episodes that John and I had such fun time uh, recording. After you listen to this episode and if you're walking or you're driving and you need something extra, go back and check out those episodes. I think they're one or two before this one. They are crackers and we had a good laugh. So
2: Yeah, we need to do that again soon, don't we?
3: We do, we do, yeah. but let's get into it. Q&A.
2: Okay, Natalie Chin says, for The Property Show, how do you think the latest APRA slash lending laws will affect housing prices in Melbourne? Down your neck of the woods, Emily. I'm surprised there's currently not more supply of homes as restrictions lift. And if you're buying a home for the next five to 10 years, do you think it's worth buying right now in this really hot market or just waiting to see in the next couple of months? So I'm going to shoot to you on this one first of all, because you're out and about and things are busy and I've seen your Instagram and and prices are going for way over than what you expected. Tell me what's happening out there.
3: It's a really interesting time, John. Um, The Melbourne market, particularly earlier in 2021, was just red hot. Everything was selling um, well over and days on market were low. But what I will say is, yes, there are some hot examples out there. Like There's some that have even knocked me over. I'm just baffled by some of the results. But just a little hint and a little glimmer of hope that some properties that you would expect to fly are starting to pass in. Now we're recording this in late October, 2021. Um, So if you're listening to it as it's released, this is relevant, but very much so there's this sort of hint of a pullback, not a downturn, Just a bit of a levelling, which we've all been waiting for, but I must say it's only on certain property types. For example, a lot of the uh, villa market or the townhouse market that has a land component with an outdoor space, they're still flying. Um as are the large family homes on land, but in the apartment market, like the two-bed, one-bed apartment market with a a balcony, I'm really starting to see a bit of a pullback on those. And I think that that would be a glimmer of hope for first-home buyers. In terms of, I guess, buying and you're going to hold it for five to 10 years, as I always say, a lot of that does come down to when you time the market to sell, obviously, that's going to get you a good result if you time that right. Um, but more generally, I can't see the heat drastically coming out and backflipping into a cold market anytime soon.
2: Yeah, no, that that's a fair call. And, and yeah, there's a, a few parts to that, isn't it? First one, she mentioned about APRA lending laws. Um, so, I think they they said to the banks, look, we've got to crack down a little bit and slow this housing growth. Um, and Talking with brokers, there's, there's probably effects lending by about 5%. So if you could lend 500,000 um, prior to APRA's changes in the last uh, month or so, then yeah, 5% of 500 is uh, 25 grand. So yeah, that's probably what it may be reduced by. I don't think that's a game changer. It just means that. We adjust our search criteria, and uh the we we may be in a different market or a different asset type um in that particular market. so yeah, um will it slow it? I don't think it'll be the sole reason for slowing the property uh, market growth in in most areas is my thoughts and and i I suppose back your comments in re, in relation to the growth um going forward. I think it'll still continue pretty well into twenty twenty two uh, it will slow at some stage, but it, it will slow gradually, I believe. Um, and this and it's probably another topic on it uh, by itself, isn't it? In this whole, when international borders open up, what then happens? And uh, do, do people retreat from those regional areas that they move to and back into the city life? And when life comes back to normal, so uh, look, there's so many topics that will affect or, or, or um, areas that will af- uh, affect market growth, but. Generally speaking, there is a massive lack of housing and and land supply around the country in areas where people want to live. And fundamentally, that's not changing anytime soon. Uh, I was reading um, some stats on Sydney. They're um, they're not making or growing houses, building houses fast enough, like to the tune of about 4,000 homes a year, which um, might not seem a lot. But over ten years, forty thousand homes that's uh, that's that's a lot of um, people that need housing somewhere. so mm. what does that do to to good property in good locations well nat- naturally it it allows it to continue to grow because of that. so yeah, the asset type does make a difference on that, but uh, yeah. The last part of Natalie's question there, are we just waiting to see what happens in the next couple of months? <laughs> and I've said this all year and all last year and for the last 20 years, uh, do what's in your control. I think if if uh, in your control is you can lend money now and the, and you can get into a market that you're keen to get into, I would say, um, yeah, move move before Christmas.
3: I think what will be interesting you know, looking as a professional perspective and also a personal one. With Melbourne in particular, you know, retails reopening, travels happening across Australia. The, uh, I guess the interest in property did grow in lockdown because there wasn't much to do, let's be honest. Like trollingrealestate.com and dreaming of your next place was a, a great pastime in lockdown. And for some people, that actually might've only been a phase of a result of being locked in. So I'm not saying this is going to drastically change it or see the market swing, but what I think will happen is only the serious buyers will be in the market and the ones who were sort of maybe wishful thinking uh, will drop off and their money might go towards, you know, that wedding or that holiday or a big shopping spree. Who knows? Um, But there's more temptations now that we're open again. And so I think maybe that will be kind to the serious buyers that the, the little stragglers on the end may drop off a bit.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely that's a that's a good point. The owner occupiers and, and Melbourne may be affected by this a little. You've you've been strangleholded, locked down, call it what you may, for the good good part of two years. So a lot of people that I speak to uh, are thinking, "Yeah, I was going to move north, but I'm going to do it sooner uh, because uh, there's a lot of migration into southeast Queensland, isn't there?" And and yeah, that was happening long before COVID arrived. So, uh, will we see a lot of um, migration of owner occupiers, uh, which make up about seventy percent of all properties bought and sold? So they're the biggest influence on the market. Investors coming in and out of the market, they, they have a small impact, but I don't think they, they make up the majority. So interesting to see what the owner-occupiers will do. Um, a lot was sitting on their hands because they physically couldn't go and inspect property. And when you're an owner-occupier, that's generally what you want to do, isn't it?
3: Most definitely. And I think um, what would be good entering into 2022 is probably we'll do an episode or provide some insights as to trajectory of what we think in the market once, you know, we've sort of had that ability to see with everything opening up, what does that now look like? So, you can hold us to that. We will do an episode on it for you.
2: That's right. (laughs) Emily will talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. Jacob Spur says, applying for a mortgage on a casual employment status, but is consistent hours and income.
3: Mm, It's always a tricky one with casual, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it is. And I think banks have been a little bit more friendly towards casual employment of late. Uh, general rule way back when was, yeah, casual employment we don't like, come back when you've got some full-time contract on the table. But now banks are a little bit more flexible with that because of the style that people are employed these days has, has become a little bit more flexible, hasn't it? So mm-hmm. I, I think um, applying for a mortgage on casual employment, if you're listening in saying, well, I'm a casual, this is interesting. I've never thought of getting a loan because I just thought I couldn't. I, I, I would definitely reach out to your broker or find a mortgage broker and, uh, and have a conversation with them. But especially when Jacob's saying that his hours are, are consistent and the income has been consistent. That's the big thing, isn't it? To know that over the last three to six months or 12 months or longer, they have pretty much been doing the same hours and getting the same income as though they were a full-time employee.
3: Exactly. Um, just a note on a broker, if you don't have one, um, on the Sort Your Money Out website, there is a link that you can get a recommendation to one that has been checked and screened by uh, Glenn and the team uh, if you're a little bit unsure because some people would like just don't have a broker as a reference. Everyone has a go-to person, so good place to go and check out who might be suitable for you as well.
2: Mm, totally, yeah. So anything more to add with Jacob's question there?
3: Yeah. Uh, not particularly. I think a good broker on board understanding the policies and the rules for each bank who can get you a, a good loan so you can get into the market, that's exciting time for you and well done for considering it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and the turnaround times are, are so wide and varied, aren't they? Like I personally went for a loan uh, about three weeks ago and my good Mortgage broker Sean Wellman said to me, "Look, allow two weeks because business, financials, and all that sort of jazz." Um, it arrived in five days, so oh. I was amazingly surprised, and and so was him. Uh, so was <laughs> so <laughs> was he. Uh, so yeah, don't um, don't just take a generalized approach to this. It's uh, it's it depends on which lender you've got, but also back to your mortgage broking point. It does. Uh, depend on what status your mortgage broker has with different lenders as well because that's that's critical. I, I know a lot of brokers will will have preferred lending status with um, some lenders, which is invaluable. You can talk about two, three-day turnarounds instead of two to three-week turnarounds.
3: Yeah, most definitely. Relationships in that space are key.
2: Uh, we'll answer one more before we take a break. Yeah. So, uh, Rathi Subra, hope I pronounced that correctly. I'd like to learn more about considerations to make when selecting a house and land package or buying a vacant land.
3: Good question. Do you know what my colleague Kobe has just been, well, she's actually going through this process, her land titled yesterday, and I've just been watching from the sidelines, a very interested journey. Um, so I think one of the biggest things that through experiencing that, um, has been around the rules of the estate specifically. And so, what I'm talking about is when land is subdivided up and it's classed in a new estate, some have more flexible rules than others and it is critical – that you are across those rules as to what you can and can't do with your build. And also even just like things like landscaping, what they will and won't allow minimum standards for your front landscape, um, colors, all sorts of things. To me, I was surprised by how many rules there can be when you're buying house and land and um, the flexibility or lack of flexibility in some situations.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, a minefield out there for a lot of people. Uh, if you want some education on this, uh, on my website, solverwealth.com.au, there's a heap of videos on house and land, but also comparing house and land versus existing, because there's no one size fits all. The thing I would say, Rathi, about this is, first of all, it's a, a supply and demand thing. You, you don't want to go and purchase some land just for the sake of it um, and just hope that it goes up in value. Uh, over time, yes, maybe, but you, you would like to get some momentum early on in, in that purchase in the first couple of years. So we, we've got to be strategic in our thinking around that and, and just – I like to – if we've got, a say, a six-, seven-stage land estate, that I like to be in the first couple of stages because that's when – you're a bit of a pioneer in that land estate, so there's a little bit of a risk there. But generally speaking, land values will increase and it'll become more costly, and you'll get less uh, land for your money as the estates, uh, the the land stages get released. All right. So there's maybe a tip for you if you're looking at that uh, buying vacant land versus a house and land package. And a lot of people say, "Well, I, I don't want." a house and land package because it's all bundled together and I think I'm going to pay too much for it, right? That is my preference because if I'm buying land that I don't know I can build something on, I, I could be stuck with something I, I can't sell or I, th- I think I can build a four-bedroom double garage on it but I'll buy the land first and then I'll, I'll um, sort that out. There's holding costs if you're going to take longer than, um, than the normal when you're just buying straight vacant land on its own, unless your strategy is actually land banking, where we might buy unregistered land 18 months, two years, 12 months from title, whatever it might be, and then as it uh, as it titles, we can then hold it for a little bit and then maybe sell it on to an owner-occupier that wants to build straight away because unregistered land, a lot of owner ox don't like because they can't build straight away. And like most Australians, we want something now, we don't want to wait for it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there's there's pros and cons of both bu- getting a house and land package or, or buying land on its own. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of rambling on about this a bit, but we do play in this space a bit and, and the house and land package we know... We've got a fixed price, no more to pay. Not sure what your coll- colleague's done there, Emily, but um, no more to pay. Landscaping's done, driveways are done, blinds are in, letterboxes in, um, clothesline, the whole bit. We don't want to be forking out of our own pocket over and above what, uh, what the builders promised.
3: Yeah, exactly. And that's, you know, to the point of a turnkey property. Um, I'm fairly certain that's what Kobe has done um, with her land titling. Now she is expecting to definitely be in by Christmas next year with the build all done. And I know she's been through the process of extra inclusions because there's always, you know, upgrades in these things like your bench tops and what sort of heating and cooling systems you want. There can be variations on those. Um, but Yeah, it's a really exciting time. And I agree with you, a package so you know what you're paying for outside of any extras that you want to add is a really smart way to go about it. Um, Unless, of course, like you mentioned, you are land banking. Yeah, but it's a common one, isn't it? 1st home buyers do often look into these uh, house and land packages. So, I think uh, as you mentioned, a great resource would be your website that does has some additional information because I know you play in that space a fair bit. For me, it's a bit of unknown territory, to be honest, but um, yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's been pretty busy in the last 18 months, two years because of the government incentives around buying new and and the little amount of money you can put in because um, progress payments and and lending deposits on the land only instead of um, the buying it all up front. So you can be strategic if you haven't got... The money or deposits you need for an existing home—that's for sure. And I haven't told you this yet, Emily, but we are getting someone on from from Melbourne who's a prominent uh, developer and and has a building company. He's actually oh. in the Afr top hundred uh, millennials uh, in today's Afr. Actually, if oh, you're reading, my so um, surprise, surprise, coming on in uh, the the near future.
3: Awesome! I'm excited for that one. And I'm glad I'm hearing about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think that brings us to a break, hey, Um, before we dive into some more questions. So hang tight. We'll be back in just a moment.
2: All right, we're back. Uh, Yaren Bekia. I listened to a recent podcast with a mortgage broker, in brackets Rachel, and it answered many of my questions. I'd like to view further discussions about this. Uh, yes, thank you, Yaron. Rachel was awesome. She's very, very, very clued up in the mortgage broking space. She runs her own show, she has done for the last 10 or 12 years. Uh, we will continue to get mortgage brokers on. Uh, because that landscape changes so much, doesn't it? We've spoken about it earlier on the show today, but we just need to keep um, up to date and and our listeners need to be well-informed when they're going to talk to their mortgage broker because the last thing we want is the mortgage broker just talking down the barrel to them and and them just nodding their head. We want to be involved in a constructive conversation so we can understand it and we're not just uh, relying purely on trust.
3: Correct. What I'll do is I'll set up something in the Facebook group um, for questions to specifically submit for a broker in an episode that we will do. So keep posted for that um, and you can ask any additional things you'd like there and we'll make sure we get it all covered off for you. Now, we have another question here from Jamie Brown. And Jamie asks, Airbnb versus long-term rental as an investment property option in the suburbs slash city you live in, for example, the Gold Coast, assuming Jamie is on the Gold Coast at the moment, what a great spot to be. Um, This is a really interesting one because it's all about risk and reward, as anything is when it comes to investments, right? Obviously, a potential safer, more sound option would be a long-term rental where you know what to expect every month in your rental repayments. You've got reliability of a tenant who's been checked and uh, has paid bond and gone into the property. But sometimes when I'm trawling Airbnb, which is my favorite hobby to do outside of trawlingrealestate.com, I look at the prices people are getting per night and I'm just like, Wow, it just there is some serious money to be made in Airbnb, but you also don't really know who you're getting as a guest, do you? That's probably the complexity of it.
2: Yeah, it's so true. I didn't know that was your pastime, Emily. I'm um, impressed. Oh, I have by so that. many saved, yeah. so
3: many saved, John. I want to travel a lot.
2: <laughs> awesome. Well, you and a lot of others have the opportunity to do that now, or um, yes. will soon anyway. So, that's changes. The Airbnb landscape once again, because if you've bought a property two years ago, uh, especially in Melbourne or Sydney or any parts of probably New South Wales and Victoria mainly, you've had a horrid time of uh, of renting out your property through Airbnb because there just wasn't the people on the roads travelling. So, my view on this has always been: if you're going to buy a property, uh, look at well, as an investment, always look at the long-term rental potential of it. and if you if it can be Airbnb then that's an absolute bonus. And as you said, the the prices per night are pretty lucrative. So mm-hmm. you might take that up for six months or twelve months over a period where there's demand for it, but then when uh, when things die down for natural reasons, oversupply, whatever it may be, you can roll back into that uh, annual, rental, that long-term rental, that guaranteed income that you're getting. Um, well, one thing, Jamie, also that I'd take into account, and the Gold Coast is probably one of the most common Airbnb places in the world, um, so it definitely sparks the conversation, but uh, I wouldn't buy an asset type just so I can Airbnb it for the cash flow. Uh, I, I like to have growth as a wealth creation strategy, not so much uh, rely on the, the $300 a night you can get. So yeah, we, we want to try and get both if we can, cash flow and capital growth. So keep them both um, in the mix as a, as a broad level strategy. And the third and final thing I would say on this is if it's um, Airbnb consistently, there's a lot of wear and tear. There's there's new people coming in. There's, there's old people going out. There's there's just Things get used a lot more often than the long-term tenant that's got all their stuff in, staying in one spot. Uh, there's, there's just not the traffic, so I think yeah, be prepared if you are going Airbnb uh, that you you just prepare yourself for some cosmetic reno's every five years um, or, or so, which is a lot sooner than we probably need to with a with a long-term rental.
3: Most definitely, um, Jamie also mentioned around the fact of having the airbnb in the suburb that you actually live in and it's a really interesting point because it also crosses over to the idea of people investing where they know in their own back garden basically one thing with airbnb is obviously you can get management companies like the Airbnb doesn't have to be accessible to you uh, if it is for investment purposes. Um, same when you are buying a long-term investment property, it doesn't need to be something you can drive past and go and check up on. In fact, you know the, the good investors and the smart investors take location away from the equation of being close to their front door. Um, but one thing to consider if you are getting an Airbnb that's not accessible to you is to look into management companies. There are plenty of Airbnb management companies out there that you can leverage for their reviews as well um, to help boost your listing and also to understand, you know, their fee structure. Is it fixed? Is it a percentage of per night cost? What the cleaning fees are and that sort of stuff just to do your homework on that before committing to a company.
2: Yeah, totally. Yeah, good friends of mine actually run one of those down in Torquay, beautiful part of Victoria. Uh, cool. I'm going
3: to Torquay tomorrow, John.
2: Are you? There you go. Can't wait. Air Ready is their name of their uh, their company down there. So, But, yeah, they've been quiet through that period, so understanding yeah. that, yeah, there's ebbs and flows and, and not just looking at the boom periods, just looking at the long term, how's that going to play out for your asset and, um, yeah, just uh, looking at – it constructively. So, yeah, great question, Jamie.
3: Now, a final question for today's episode comes from Jess Fell, and Jess has asked step by step on how to start buying an investment property in Australia. Now, Jess, this is a big question, very big question. It probably could be an episode in itself. So, maybe John, if we each give some key points of what we would do when we're looking for an investment property, Um, And in a more in-depth episode, a standalone episode, most likely we could frame a step-by-step journey as to how to invest in property in Oz. In terms of the things that I would be looking out for and maybe even some shedding some light on what I've learned as an investor or rent investor myself, number one, and I just touched on it before, but number one is you need to treat the market as Australia-wide, that the the market you're buying into isn't the suburb that you know, it isn't the suburb that mum and dad live in um, or the tip that you got from a friend who's just bought an investment property, you know, who read something in a magazine. If you really are a a true investor, in my personal opinion, is that you take Australia as the market and you analyse the markets within that big market, not just your own um, back garden. And I think that's the biggest lesson that a lot of people learn early on. It's a very common trend that investors buy their first one in most likely in the state that they reside in. I did that. And, you know, hands up, I probably, uh, although it worked out okay, I probably could have bought better if I had treated it a bit wider. And then what I commonly see is the second investment purchase, if they do progress to that, They take a completely different approach, investors, and they're like, okay, I don't care where it is. I just need the numbers to stack up. And uh, I would argue that if you had that attitude from the get-go, that maybe your um, asset could be worth a lot more if you'd taken that approach. So, um, that's something I'm very passionate about when it comes to investing is remove all location barriers and look at Australia as a wide market as absolute step number one in my mind is a mindset piece. Mm.
2: Good one. Yeah, no, I like that. And uh, not not in your own backyard, as you've mentioned, some um, really critical. And you may end up going back into your backyard, but at least you've had some, I suppose, some negative bias to o- override your confirmation bias. So yeah, no, it's a good one. So I would probably look at what our long-term outcome is. So, so saying, well, what's 10 years, 15 years look like for me? Do, we, do I want my owner a home? Do I, do I, am I having kids through that time? So what does my cash flow requirements uh, need to be? What, what are my deposit amounts going to need to be, et cetera? So looking just beyond this first investment purchase in the next six to 12 months. Second one is knowing what you can lend, knowing what the banks will lend you. So just seeing what your deposits are, and knowing your serviceability, meaning this is how much the banks will, will lend you. So once you've got that, then you need to look at that uh, high-level strategy. So is it cash flow? Is it capital growth? Is it some tax benefits? Is it a combination of all that? And then narrowing down to what yield do I need, uh, what class of property, what buying entity, what type of property, our loan-to-value ratio, the price, all, all these things that we we should be able to nail and confidently look at when we just start to look on realestate.com. So before we we jump on the online to look at properties or, or speak to agents. We've, we should have all of this in place. Um, so I, I think a lot of investors actually do the reverse. They, mm-hmm. they jump on real estate domain <laughs> and say, oh, this looks good. Um, I might buy this and then talk to agents and always, oh, have you got finance? No. Do you know what your long-term outcome is? No. Do you know what your strategy is? No. Just look nice, right? So just sort of, um, yeah, pull the truck up. Um, keep the computer closed and and just or, or the phone and just look at what's in your control first and then go externally for an investment um, purchase. But yeah, obviously um, nice organic plug, my property academy is a is a great resource for that in terms of uh, getting the the foundations in order first
3: most definitely i've actually been through that academy myself to have a little look-see john gave me access which is very kind of him a while back now actually um if it if you are someone who's new to the investing world and you really need to get a handle on like what steps what are even what do the terms even mean some people you know just sort of nod their head along with what people are saying you know about yields and returns and capital gain and they don't really know what it means so definitely go and check that out there'll be a link in the show notes uh to john's academy do you
2: do you get that weekly email that says you're 38% through? I yeah. do. I think that it goes a, to
3: my spam now.
2: I feel guilty <laughs> that you haven't progressed since last week.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I haven't progressed further. That's okay. Yeah,
2: delete. Yeah, no, good. Love it. All right, well, that's a wrap, isn't
3: it? That's a wrap for uh, this week's Q&A. Thank you so much to everyone who has contributed in asking a question. Um, as noted, we will do a episode on the broking space and I'll put up a post for you to ask questions in the My Millennial Money Facebook group. If you're not a member, go and add yourself in now to be approved. And we will also at some stage do a step-by-step in-depth episode on investing in property and, and what we are looking out for and a breakdown of terms. It's been a while since we've done one specifically on that. So we'll circle back and, and give you uh, a good rundown of that. I think that's it for today.
2: Very good. Thanks for tuning in and we'll talk to you soon.
3: We will do. Have a great week.
1: We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast.
2: Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education.
3: That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps.
2: I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space.
3: And I've created The Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers.
1: Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get started today.